Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, your genial host here at The Roger Stone Show, and you're tuned in to 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio. For the next two hours from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we talk politics, news, history, style, food, and a lot more. Now, as a veteran of politics for over 45 years, you build a certain network of contacts. Uh, And I was surprised uh, when a contact I have in Israel someone extraordinarily capable and connected in Israeli politics, told me that prior to the airstrikes by the United States in Iraq and Syria, that our national security agency told the Iranians about the location and timing of the strikes so that they could move their key military and intelligence personnel out of harm's way. I was told by my extraordinarily reliable source that the information was passed from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to the Qataris, who then in turn passed it on to the Iranians. I uh, wouldn't be reporting this to you except for I then heard from a former United States Senator who has an extraordinary amount of credibility that he heard the exact same thing from his contacts within the Iranian resistance. What kind of war is this? Why do we reportedly now have 3,000 troops in the region along the border in the north, along uh, with the Kurds? The Department of Defense announced that the bombing raids were carried out by two B-1 bombers sent from a base in Texas. Uh, They were required actually to stop to refuel once. Do we have no bombers in our bases in the Middle East or Europe? Uh, This makes about as much sense as unfreezing $100 billion in assets for Iran and thinking that they will not use it to fund Islamic terrorism. Uh, In the meantime, according to the New York Post, Joe Biden is reported to be furious uh, at Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, calling him an effing idiot uh, because this war is starting to cost 
Sleepy Joe votes. Indeed, uh, a new NBC poll has the Democrats in an extraordinary panic. Donald Trump has actually now posted his largest lead yet against President Biden in a new poll that was released today. Overall, the voters gave incumbent Biden his lowest marks across the board. Trump, who is 77 years old, uh, ranked at 47% to 42% over Biden, who is 81 with registered voters. That makes an increase from a previous 44 to 46 to 44 edge that was recorded in November. This is the biggest lead NBC has ever had in the 16 polls they have done testing Trump versus Biden. Uh, now you see precisely why the Democrats are in this kind of panic. Biden has really pegged a re-election uh, to Bidenomics, uh, has been pointing to the newly posted job numbers. The January jobs report appeared to be a blockbuster with 353 net job creations, which was almost double the estimates of 180,000 jobs. But housing expert and economic uh, guru Barry Habib sent me a very interesting email. Here's his analysis. He says that a deeper look takes it, tells a much different story. The Bureau of Labor Statistics use seasonal adjustments to smooth out these numbers to take into account changes that may not normally occur during different times of the year. The adjustment for January is often large because the drop-off of holiday hires who are temporary. So Barry says, let's look at the raw numbers. Now, right from the Bureau of Labor Standards report, it shows that we actually lost in real numbers 2,635,000 jobs. But then again, because of the magic keystroke of seasonal adjustments, the actual and true number of jobs lost was to make it look as if we had actually gained 353,000 jobs. This seasonal adjustment was a whopping 2,988,000. This is kind of convenient for an administration with its lowest approval ratings and also happens to just come before the State of the Union, where Joe, no doubt, will really pump these numbers. Unfortunately, the weakness does not stop there. The number of hours worked per week plummeted to 34.1. This is the lowest number of hours worked in 14 years, including during the depths of the pandemic. That means that the entire labor force is working one half hour less per week on average compared to a year ago. The correct way to view all this is to take the relative reduction in hours worked and multiply it by the labor force, which is equivalent to 2.4 million job losses over the last year. Now there's much more in this report to pick apart, but we'll leave you with just one more statistic. The January report shows that 63,000 full-time jobs were lost and they were replaced by 96,000 part-time jobs. It gets much worse when you look at the past three months. 
we've lost an astounding 1.4 million full-time jobs while adding 900,000 part-time jobs. Now, while some in the media don't understand this, the truth about the job situation in America is not that great. Immigration continues to lead uh, the nation as the number one concern. The incident in New York City, where a group of illegal migrants beat up two New York City police officers and were then released without bail, has shocked the city, the state, uh, and the nation. It's not really surprising that Americans are upset about the illegal immigrant uh, I, what would you call it, uh, uh, invasion of America? Uh, now follow that with news that Mayor Eric Adams has approved a $53 million plan to give preloaded credit cards to illegals to buy food. Well, it adds insult to injury. You can see why uh, Republicans are particularly upset about a new proposal uh, that has been put forward by Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, and Oklahoma Senator James Lankford that is called a border security bill. But that bill would actually allow 5,000 illegal immigrants per day to enter and work in the United States. The figure that therefore translates to 155,000 illegal immigrants per month which turns it, then in turn is an annual total of 1.8 million illegals. You can see why no one actually believes that this is a border security bill. But the quick shift in Joe Biden's position is notable. Only weeks ago, Secretary uh, of Homeland Security Mayorkas uh, and the White House spokesman, uh, Ms. Jean-Pierre, were telling us that the border was secure. Now, total, now, suddenly, Joe Biden tells us, no, he doesn't believe the border is secure. He's been saying that for a long time. No, actually, he hasn't been saying that. Uh, but that it's Donald Trump's fault, or it's the Republicans' fault. It's the Republicans' fault, he says, because they won't give him the tools he needs to secure our border. This is, of course, nonsense. Uh, if we just enforced the laws as they are currently written uh, and gave the Border Patrol the correct instructions, well, Donald Trump proved that illegal border crossings could be brought down to a veritable trickle. You can see why voters are upset. Uh, a story out of Washington State says that that state has now diverted $340 million in federal COVID funds to immigrants who will now get a monthly $1,000 check. You see why people are upset? Uh, the average American in Maui, uh, after the horrific uh, events there, got a one-time check for $600. Uh, I don't see any circumstance under which immigration is taken off the table uh, as the number one issue in the upcoming campaign, uh, and it inures to the benefit of Donald Trump, as these polls show. 
uh, an extraordinary interview uh, that Trump gave today in which he talked about the potential vice presidents. We talked about this on last week's show. Uh, it, it is very interesting. Uh, I think it is, as the president says, premature to choose a vice president. We don't know really who the Democratic nominee for president and vice president will be. I mean, conventional wisdom is that it will be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but I have uh, quibbled with that here on the Roger Stone Show. Uh, Donald Trump uh, says he has a short list, but if that's true, well, candidly, he hasn't shared it with me. In fact, I don't think he's shared it with anyone else. That means the short list is in his mind. Uh, it was former President Richard Nixon who once told me when looking for a vice presidential running mate, don't look for someone who can help you, just choose someone who doesn't hurt you. The criteria here, I think, is pretty clear. First and foremost, uh, Trump needs someone who is fully capable of being president, someone with the experience, qualifications, temperament, and judgment to actually do the job. Uh, if, God forbid, something should happen to a President Trump. But then, secondarily, you then look for someone who might help you politically. I don't believe the old criterias of geography are what matter. I think it is more important to try to pick someone who, while they do not in any way upset the make America great America first base, uh, does not, uh, but still allows you to reach out to uh, a constituency you don't have, such as millennials or uh, African Americans uh, or Hispanics. That is really the political exercise here. I do think Trump has lots of options. I wouldn't be shocked uh, to see him choose somebody who is not from the world of politics, someone who comes uh, to the scene from a different discipline but has the broad experience and qualifications to be president. Trump himself is, of course, a businessman. He ran a multi-billion dollar corporation which fully qualified him to be president of the United States. Uh, he also, uncharacteristically in his interview on MSNBC, I believe it was, or Fox this morning, uh, actually admitted to certain mistakes uh, in his presidency. Uh, that's true. He came to the presidency without a political background, fully convinced that there were two teams, the Republicans and the Democrats, and the Republicans would be with him and the Democrats would be opposed. Little did he know that half of the established Republicans wanted to get rid of him from day one leading to the Russian collusion hoax, the greatest single dirty trick in American politics in which the full authority of the United States government and the extraordinary capability of our intelligence agencies uh, was utilized, uh, knowingly utilizing fabricated evidence, the so-called Steele dossier, in an illicit illegal effort to remove a sitting president of the United States. I'm Roger Stone, this is The Roger Stone Show, and I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the 
we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm John Morgan of Morgan & Morgan. When I set out to build our firm, it was built for greatness. It was built for you. For over 35 years, my mission has been to deliver more for our clients, to deliver more for you. Today, Morgan & Morgan has more offices, more staff, and more lawyers than any other injury firm in the world. If you or anyone in your family has been injured, call America's largest injury law firm. Call Morgan & Morgan. ForThePeople.com. Visit ForThePeople.com for an office near you. I love my Patriot Cigar Company. Premium hand-rolled cigars blended by some of the best master blenders in the industry using only the finest aged tobacco from Nicaragua. Four different blends and complexities to satisfy any palate. Premium cigars. These are my go-to cigars. So right now, use promo code STONE for 25% off, plus free shipping on orders over $100. MyPatriotCigars.com, promo code STONE. That's MyPatriotCigars.com. It's a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. Stone, and this is the Roger Stone show. Politics, 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 as Mel Brooks said in the movie History of the World Part One. One of my favorite movies, if you've never seen it. Uh, now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store and get the 77WABC app for your phone. You don't want to miss any of the great programming here at 77WABC, whether it's talk or entertainment. We have the best of the best. So you can listen to this show after the fact. You can listen to all of the great programming if you happen to miss any of it. It's a great privilege for me to be on after the great Lou Dobbs, who has now joined the lineup here at 77 WABC. Also had a great time with John Katzmatidis this morning, uh, talking politics as usual. And we have a, a great show for you today. Uh, independent investigative journalist Matt uh, Eby joins us uh, right here on the Roger Stone, Stone Show. He is one of the first reporters to be given access to the Twitter files, which exposed the government-led program to censor and cancel anyone on Twitter who questioned the authenticity or the content of Hunter Biden's laptop, uh, or who questioned the basic narrative of the Russian collusion hoax, or for that matter, anyone who supported President Donald Trump. As one of the victims of that purge, yes, I was actually banned for life, I thought, on Twitter, now known as X, as early as 2017. They actually never told me which 
particular posting got me banned. First, I was sending a notification that I had a 24-hour ban, so I expected at the end of the 24-hour period that my profile would be live again, and then candidly, well, it just completely disappeared. Uh, no amount of emailing uh, or trying to contact Twitter uh, would ever get me a satisfactory answer, but now I know the answer. Uh, my opinions, my political opinions, were inconvenient. I was challenging the official U.S. government political narrative. I also was banned for life on Facebook uh, and Instagram. That happened uh, on the day that the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, upheld the gag order on me uh, in the District of Columbia during my Soviet-style witch hunt trial, which I was charged with lying uh, under oath to Congress in my voluntary testimony before the House Intelligence Committee uh, about Russian collusion that we now know definitively never actually took place. What perplexes me is how, even today, there are multiple Roger Stones on Facebook no, folks, those are definitely not me. And definitely don't buy any crypto or do any other commerce with anyone on Facebook claiming to be me because, well, I have no profile on Facebook. Uh, also, strangely enough, my, my page on YouTube completely disappeared without notification. But then very recently I found out that there's actually a verified profile on YouTube for the, someone calling themselves a real Roger Stone. That isn't me either. Uh, and then every once in a while, now that I am very, very grateful to Elon Musk for being back on Twitter, now known as X, well, there will be a new profile will pop up. Uh, they, again, pretend to be me. They use the exact same graphics. They actually mirror my posts. I'm not sure what the point of this is, uh, contacting X, who tells us that they take uh, the, the theft of identity very serious, uh, after a couple weeks period, the fake Roger Stones disappear, but as soon as they're gone, well, a new one pops up. If you want to follow me, I'm Roger J. Stone Jr., Roger J. Stone Jr., uh, only on X. Uh, over at uh, True Social, I'm real Roger Stone. That's because somebody over at, at True Social, a squatter is what they're called, has uh, Roger J. Stone Jr. That's definitely not me. Also joining us today on the Roger Stone Show is former FBI counterintelligence expert John Guandolo, who's going to talk to us about how deeply America has been infiltrated by Islamic terrorists and what we as citizens can do about it uh, and what our leaders should do about it. Also on deck is attorney Tyler Nixon, who's going to talk to us about why the Delaware courts have stripped Elon Musk of his $64 million compensation, uh, as well as the latest lawfare cases against President Trump and the developments in Georgia, D.C. Uh, and Florida. 
So it's a jam-packed show, and you want to hang on for those great interviews. In the meantime, uh, Robert F. Kennedy uh, has kind of shifted gears, as I think most folks know. He began the contest running as a Democrat when the Democratic National Committee stripped Iowa's caucuses and New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary uh, of their delegates uh, as a way to signal that Joe Biden would not compete in those states, not giving an opening to Robert F. Kennedy. Well, Kennedy quickly figured out that the Democratic National Committee, the folks who keep claiming to be standing up for democracy, were essentially going to clear the path for Joe Biden. Uh, he announced uh, with some fanfare that he was going to seek ballot access as an independent. Uh, as I have told you here on the Roger Stone Show a couple times, uh, that's easier said than done. Uh, in other words, you don't just go into the Board of Elections, sign a document, pay a small fee, and you're listed on the ballot, particularly in the larger states, the swing states. The laws that govern ballot access, particularly for an independent candidate, uh, are written by Republicans and Democrats working together to kind of uh, make sure there is no competition. So uh, the requirements are onerous. The laws are complicated. Uh, they give you a very brief time frame under, uh, during which you must collect an extraordinarily large number of valid signatures. One of the things we hope to talk to Matt Taibbi about is a great interview he gave last week where the Democrats are already beginning legally to challenge Robert Kennedy's candidacy at the state level to try to ensure that he doesn't get on the ballot. But in a, a new development, Robert Kennedy conceded last week that uh, perhaps he will, after all, seek the nomination of the Libertarian Party. Now, the Libertarian Party doesn't have a big name or well-funded candidate for president. They have a history, with the exception of the two cycles in which they nominated former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson, uh, of nomin nominating little-known academics uh, or activists with very little ability to raise the necessary resources to mount a national campaign. Uh, if you're a minor party candidate or an independent party candidate, well, you, you start behind the eight ball anyway because you can't get well known until you're in the debates and you can't be in the debates, well, until you're well known. It is the ultimate catch-22. We're going to talk to uh, Matt Taibbi about that as well coming up. Very quickly, a great reaction to my family's meatball recipe last week, but many, many people texted and emailed and wanted to know, that's great, the meatballs sound great, but what about the sauce? Here it is very quickly in the nutshell. Saute some onions uh, in a, a high-grade olive oil uh, until they are translucent. Uh, then you add uh, the minced garlic. Now, remember, garlic has a much uh, lower burning point, so you want to be very careful not to burn the garlic. Uh, then you add two or three cans of San Marzano tomatoes. 
uh, San Marzano, once again, is not a brand. It is a type, a style of tomato. You can get them at Gristiti's. They have a number of, of companies sell them. Uh, you very quickly then add, you add the juice, by the way, with the tomatoes, one can of tomato paste, uh, an equal amount of water of the size of the tomato paste can, salt, pepper, uh, oregano, marjoram, thyme, and basil. That's it, folks. It cooks for four hours. And when your meatballs, we gave you that recipe last weekend already, you drop the meatballs in. Absolutely sublime. Manja. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and we'll be right back. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics, and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC. Don't touch that dial. You can listen to us worldwide at wabcradio.com. We're live streaming around the globe. But if you're lucky enough to live in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I was born and grew up, well, you can find us at 770 on the AM dial. Joining us now, Matthew Colin Taibbi is an American author, journalist, and podcaster. Uh, he has reported on finance, media, politics, and sports. He's a former contributing editor for Rolling Stone. He's the author of several books. He co-hosts a podcast, The Useful Idiots, uh, and he is the publisher of the Racket News on Substack. You can find that at racket.news. I have just subscribed. I urge you to do the same. Matt Taibbi, thank you so much for joining The Roger Stone Show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I am an admirer of yours. Uh, you were one of the first reporters in the country to be given access uh, to the Twitter files. Uh, for those who, I don't know, may be living under a rock, uh, <laughs> tell us about that story and uh, and the, uh, what you found and the fallout from it. Sure. So at the end of last year, um, Elon Musk, who had just bought Twitter, decided to open up the internal files uh, of the previous incarnation of Twitter to um, a group of independent journalists. I was really the first. And we looked through uh, tens of thousands of emails and attachments and other documents, and we found ultimately, it took us about a month to find, but we found that there was a sophisticated system of what you might call public-private censorship that worked with the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, they were working with companies like Twitter to suppress and make recommendations about content on platforms like Twitter. And um, it was a big story, and it started a, led to, among other things, a Supreme Court case uh, that's going to be litigated this year about government censorship. I think there are a few journalists who can honestly say that they have changed the course of history. I actually think you are one. 
I'm a, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. Uh, he gets some criticism, but not from me. Not only did he restore my voice, and I detect no evidence to shadow ban me or hamper my free expression, but this story really changed the course of uh, American politics in many ways. Uh, the, the regime claimed that there was no censorship. We now realize, because of the door that was opened to you by Elon Musk, that that was not the case. This is one of the biggest stories, uh, frankly, uh, of the decade, uh, and I salute you for it. Well, I, I appreciate that, although I didn't really have to do a whole lot. I mean, really, this was about uh, Elon making the decision to open up these documents. It was a bit of a challenge to piece together what actually we were looking at. Uh, but I think any any serious journalist who was given this kind of access would have found it eventually. Um, and, you know, I think you're, you make a good point, which is that they had denied this for so long. The government had denied it. The platforms had denied it. And sometimes, you know, the public just needs to get a look at the actual documentation. And it, and it can have a fundamental change on how people think. And I think this is one of those instances. Well, I do notice, though, that you took uh, quite a beating uh, among partisans, bipartisans, uh, for your role in, in just simply reporting the truth. Uh, what I like about your reporting is you're not a partisan, you're not ideological, you're a straight reporter. You report what you find, and you report it uh, unvarnished. Uh, nonetheless, there are many who attacked you. Um, I, I'm used to being attacked. Uh, I guess you are now, too. Uh, but uh, it has really been, uh, I think, life-changing in terms of the way we view the online role of these giant platforms. Let me point out that we have no such information from Facebook or Instagram. Uh, I can tell you that the, the same kind of censorship and limitations are being put on people there. My wife has an Instagram profile. I'm not allowed to have one. Uh, the first time she posted uh, what they call a reel, a short video, was a clip of a speech that I gave in Palm Beach. Uh, it, it had, you know, half a million views almost overnight. Uh, then the second time she did so, I think I got, I don't know, 300 views. How is that possible? Uh, I'm grateful to Mrs. Stone for posting that, but uh, the limitations they put on you at Instagram are really quite uh, extraordinary. Uh, you have uh, a, an incredible story, which is why I was so anxious to get you uh, on the show today, uh, that is up at racket.news. Uh, uh, and folks, you can go there to subscribe to this uh, incredible uh, Substack uh, production that, uh, that Matt Taibbi writes. Uh, let me just read the first paragraph to set the table. Uh, you write in a piece uh, entitled, Is the Electoral Fix already in, subtitle, the 2024 presidential race increasingly looks like it will be decided by lawyers and not voters as Democrats unveil plans for America first lawfare. First paragraph, the fix is in to, quote, protect democracy. Democracy is already being canceled. We just haven't admitted the implications of this to ourselves. Uh, and a jumping off point, you cite an NBC News story, which I found shocking, Headlined, fears grow that Trump will use the military in dictatorial ways if he returns to the White House. Tell us about this story. There's a lot to unpack. 
Sure. So uh, three years ago, in actually, I guess it's almost four years ago now, there was a, a group called the Transition Integrity Project um, that had about 100 people in it and included pretty influential figures like John Podesta, Donna Brazil, Bill Crystal, uh, the former RNC chairman Michael Steele. They got together to war game possibilities about what they would do if Donald Trump um, decided not to leave the presidency. Uh, and they also war game possibilities of, you know, what, ha- what would happen if Joe Biden uh, lost, but they were also, they decided not to adhere to that decision. And there were, um, there was a leak about what this group talked about, and they were forced basically to release the results of their report. And it showed that there were, you know, some of these people were planning or they had made plans to war game up possibilities for uh, objecting to a clear Trump win uh, in case uh, after the election. And so this new news, this new story you referred to in the NBC about, you know, fears grow and uh, about Trump misusing the military, it looks like a reconstitution of this same kind of group that is getting together to plan uh, for contingencies of how to um, take on the Trump, uh, Trump presidency in the event that he wins uh, from the inside. And that's the significance of it. Yeah, it's, uh, this is an, an amazing story because at least in the Russian collusion hoax, they cloaked themselves. Now they're kind of right out there in the open. Uh, the idea that they keep pushing that it is Trump who is a threat to democracy. Now, I speak, of course, as a partisan, but it's the Biden administration seeking to lock up their principal and leading opponent. Some of you would see in Castro's Cuba or Mao's China or Stalin's Russia. Uh, it is uh, this administration uh, that is uh, using the arms of government to censor and cancel people on social media uh, and uh, through outlets like Google when they have inconvenient uh, political opinions that don't match the regime. Uh, it's this administration that admits that the 702 database was dipped into in excess of four million times to illegally access information regarding ordinary Americans. This administration that admits that there were 178,000 warrantless surveillances of American citizens. Who is it that's a threat to democracy? While we're at it, uh, they're trying to knock Donald Trump off the ballot, not let him compete based on a, a flawed argument that He's guilty of insurrection when no court has yet convicted him. Uh, or he doesn't even, he's not even charged with insurrection as of this time. So that is a subjective opinion of somebody in Colorado or someone in any other state. Uh, these people are, really are pretty outrageous, but it's the, it's the same usual suspects from what I can see. Uh, Mark uh, Elias uh, 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 Mary McCord, who's now a Georgetown law professor. I mean, who who's in this cabal, Matt? Yeah, it's a lot of former um, defense officials, uh, people in the Democratic Party, Democratic Party lawyers. There are foundations um, that are funded by people like the LinkedIn billionaire um, Reid Hoffman. Uh, it, there, there are a lot of names that appear repeatedly in both groups. Um, there are some connections with Georgetown in both cases. Um, 
but you know, I think what you what you mentioned about you know the, the behavior of say Castro's Cuba or Stalin's Russia. I came of age in as a reporter in Yeltsin's and Putin's Russia. I was I worked over there um, as a young man, and if the, an incumbent president had dropped 120 criminal charges um, on an opponent and uh, tried to get them off the ballot and censored the, their opponent and then uh, put together groups like this to war game possibilities for disqualifying them from uh, contention, uh, that would look like exactly what it is, which is, you know, third world style corruption of democracy. We've just elected not to call it that here in the United States. Um, and I say that as somebody who's never voted Republican. I'm not a Trump fan at all. I, it's, this is just it is what it is. It's um, and it's it's incredible to me that the press has not picked up on it. Uh, it's surprising that, uh, first of all, that NBC ran this story, but it's also surprising that it has gotten as little pickup uh, as it has. Uh, here's the part I found most shocking reading from your article. Uh, you're referring here to the NBC article. The article implied a future Trump presidency will necessitate new forms of external control over the military. It cited Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal's bill to, quote, clarify, unquote, the uh, Insurrection Act, a 1972 law that empowers the president to deploy the military to quell domestic rebellion. Blumenthal's act would add a requirement that Congress or the courts ratify presidential decision-making to deploy the military at home, seeking essentially to attach a congressional breathalyzer to the presidential steering wheel. God, you're a great writer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what it is, basically, right? I mean, you don't get to drive the car unless they say so, right? And I think that's, that's the idea. Um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 incredible and it's on multiple fronts too. I mean it's the Insurrection Act, it's the Russia investigation, it's deep lawsuits, it's one thing after another, and it's a radical change in kind of the left liberal advocacy space, which I grew up in. Um, they were never this kind of aggressive before, so it's it's uh, it's an amazing story. No, look, there was a there was a time that the Democratic Party was the principal critic of the FBI back during the Vietnam War. Uh, we learned about illicit and illegal efforts to surveil uh, anti-war activists. The, those in the Democratic Party, those on the American left, were outraged and rightfully so. Uh, we seem to have lost that strain uh, of of progressive Democrat. They call themselves progressives, but they're actually fundamentally against uh, free speech. Uh, and um, as you say in this piece, the Biden administration has been hinting for some time uh, that they intend to win this next election involving something, as you put it, other than voting. You already have, as I said, lawsuits in multiple states to remove Trump from the ballot. Uh, I'm glad to see that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the Colorado case, which will presumably set the standards. We've talked about it extensively here on the show with uh, criminal defense attorney and uh, Trump impeachment lawyer David Schoen uh, and others uh, who don't believe, uh, first of all, that the section of the Constitution would be uh, uh, Article 14, Section 3. Uh, first of all, there is no conviction for insurrection 
secondly, it specifically doesn't pertain to President of the United States. And thirdly, there's a very strong argument that it is not self-executing, that Congress would have to pass a law in order to trigger this. Uh, I noticed over the weekend that uh, the legal analyst at NBC seems to disagree uh, with that. that. That's fine, but there's nobody censoring him on any of the uh, of the uh, of the social media platforms. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, you're absolutely right. Um, the this this uh, argument about the Insurrection Act and uh, and you know the, the series of lawsuits. I think you know even the people involved with the filing of these suits and these most of these suits are backed by uh, Crew. Which is a you know a longtime left liberal advocacy organization that once had a reputation for being kind of bipartisan. They had filed complaints against people like Charlie Rangel and Anthony Weiner, uh, but they changed their direction in the mid uh, 2010s, and they're now basically what you could call a lockbear organization, which files these suits. Uh, you know, part of what they're doing is they're trying to chew up resources. Uh, of their political opponents, even if they don't have a high success uh, probability, the, you know, knowing that they have an enormous amount of resources and, and a lot of lawyers to throw at these issues. So they're doing this to everybody, not just Donald Trump. They're doing it to the third party group, No Labels. They're doing it to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They're doing it to their, uh, the other Democratic Party uh, candidates. Um, there's a lot of money and a lot of lawyers in the space that just are are essentially filing nuisance complaints uh, to try to take up time and resources of their political opponents, which I, I don't think is in the spirit of democracy. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show. I'm talking to independent uh, investigative journalist Matt Taibbi, and we'll be right back. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him not everybody but people love him and respect him roger stone now here's roger stone welcome back this is roger stone and this is the roger stone show we're talking to matt taibbi uh who is uh the progenitor of Racket.News, which is a great Substack page. You definitely want to subscribe. I have done so. Uh, and we're talking about uh, a truly seminal piece that I think he has written, uh, in which he makes the case that uh, perhaps the electoral fix is already in. Perhaps the next presidential election is going to be decided not at the ballot box, but uh, in the courts. Matt, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. Uh, you were referring to no labels uh, and also to the independent candidacy uh, of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, in my opening, uh, I mentioned that Robert Kennedy's now talking about potentially uh, seeking the Libertarian Party nomination, which from a practical point of view I can understand because it would give him access to about 30 state ballots uh, automatically, and then he could use his uh, resources to petition his way on the ballot in the balance of the states. But based on a great interview that I saw you gave with uh, Walter Kern, uh, the Democratic Party or those who are prominent in it, Mark Elias, uh, David Brock, and others, 
are already trying to interfere with both no labels, which is a nonpartisan, I should say bipartisan, independent group seeking to get uh, an alternative uh, candidate on the ballot for president includes Joe Lieberman, a former senator from Connecticut, a friend of mine actually, uh, a great man even though we have many disagreements, uh, and others. Tell us about this effort. Yes, yeah, so uh, no labels, as you mentioned. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of bipartisan uh, third-party effort. It's uh, been building up momentum for about 10 years now. Um, it has people like uh, Joe Lieberman and Dr. Ben Chavis, from, who is the former head of the, the NAACP, uh, involved, but also has um, the former Republican governor of uh, North Carolina uh, involved, um, and, and other figures. And they got hold of a, um, a tape in which uh, there were a number of uh, advocacy groups meeting um, and a number of sort of uh, lawyers that were linked to the Democratic Party, who they had a Zoom meeting uh, last year in which they were discussing what to do about no labels. And there's uh, an extraordinary quote where one of them says, we have to get the message out that uh, if anybody uh, gets involved with this, if you have one fingernail clipping of a skeleton in your closet, we will find it. Um, if you think you were vetted when you ran for governor, you're insane. That was nothing. We will come at you with every gun we can possibly find. Um, and they put all this in a letter to the Department of Justice. There's a long list of harassment incidents involving this this party. And that's just one front in a long campaign of trying to use lawyers and the courts to exclude uh, political opposition. Uh, in this election cycle, I, I think it's unprecedented. Uh, we obviously, it obviously happened with people like Ralph Nader in the past, but this is uh, this is something new to go after everybody in all directions. Yeah, it has definitely happened in the past. Uh, for example, in 2012, uh, former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson, who I actually served for president in that cycle because I candidly couldn't stomach Mitt Romney. Uh, was uh, barred from the ballot by lawsuits uh, in, I think it was Oklahoma and Michigan, I believe it was. Oklahoma, strangely enough, has never had a third or independent party candidate allowed on their ballot since 1962. By the way, it was, in both those cases, it was the Republicans who objected to Governor Johnson being on the ballot. Uh, personally, I'm opposed to this, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. I think uh, people should have a full range of choices. Uh, but as I said in the beginning, there is a there is a catch-22 to it. Uh, so believing you can get on the ballot, uh, I've been predicting sometimes that Democrats, and probably before it's over, Republicans, uh, will work to remove any alternative from the ballot, whether it's Robert Kennedy or whether it's uh, a, a no-labels candidate. I guess the, the big question for me is no-labels needs a candidate. They need somebody with a name or someone with a national profile, do you think they have anybody or do you think they will find anyone? Yeah, I asked that question. They, they didn't give me an answer. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think they're ready to commit to uh, anybody as yet, but in this environment, ballot access is worth its weight in gold. And um, if they do manage to get uh, on 32 or 34 states, which is what they're predicting, 
uh, and they will have a theoretical chance to get to the 270 number uh, for electoral votes, then uh, they will be able to offer somebody the opportunity to run for president. And I, I think, you know, so somebody will emerge. Um, it could even be one of the major party candidates. That's not excluded either. But um, but so far, what's what's interesting about it is just the absolute determination to prevent uh, this group from doing this before anyone even knows what the supposed violations are. Uh, the, you know, people like Mark Elias um, and American Bridge. There have already been news stories about them being hired to look into filing technical um, complaints against this group before anyone even knows what the complaints are, which is backwards. I mean, I don't think that's the way that the courts are supposed to work. So it's great. No, it's, uh, but uh, there, there are law firms in New York State, I can tell you, whose specialty is knocking people off the ballot. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a dirty, dirty process. All right, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Let me thank my guest. Matt Taibbi, independent journalist. Please go to racket.news and subscribe to his great Substack feed. Uh, he is a great reporter. He is always breaking news. You want to go there and subscribe today. Matt, thank you so much for making yourself available for the Racket. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he... Uh only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and you're tuned in to the Roger Stone Show, where we're talking about, well, what else? Politics. Joining me now, uh, Tyler Nixon, attorney at law, longtime political activist, uh, writer, uh, confidant and friend of mine who's represented me personally as an attorney, extraordinarily knowledgeable about both the law and politics and the media and how it operates it. And uh, he joins us now on the Roger Stone Show. Tyler, welcome to the show. Roger, it's great to be with you. And uh, I just want to congratulate you on this excellent show that you've, uh, you've developed uh, just only a couple hours a week. But it is absolutely packed with some of the best uh, political analysis and uh, guests that you'll find anywhere on uh, radio. Well, we're very proud of it. President Donald Trump was on our maiden show, which I'm incredibly proud of. We've had uh, uh, Congressman uh, Byron Donalds. Uh, we've had Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Uh, we've had uh, Lee Greenwood. Uh, it's really uh, it's really been a great experience, and I love doing it. Put a lot of work into it uh, to try to look at the news and see those things that aren't getting the kind of attention I think they deserve. Uh, and even though I'm a partisan, we we try to present things in a very fair-minded way. Uh, I appreciate your uh, coming on today. Let's kind of start. You worked in the Chancery Court in Delaware uh, as an attorney. Uh, I'm shocked by this new decision, which essentially uh, voids the compensation that 
Elon Musk is getting from his various companies. I mean, how how can this be? Well, uh, just per, uh, first of all, it's an honor to be on with you. I want to say that. And um, I clerked for the Delaware Chancery Court just out of law school. I wasn't uh, yet admitted to the bar, um, and I'm not currently a licensed Delaware attorney. So I'm just going to be speaking generally. Uh, about what I, you know, what I see coming out of the Chancery Court, and just based on my experience, which is that um, what happens with uh, in the Delaware Chancery Court that you get are what are called derivative actions, and these are shareholder lawsuits that are brought typically not by actual uh, shareholders, but on, by by law firms that specialize in this, uh, and typically the, the the ones who make the most money on any of these lawsuits are the lawyers. Um, but what they do is they'll take a representative plaintiff, and in this case, uh, in Musk's being sued over the, his compensation package, the actual plaintiff only held nine shares of Tesla, which is, I think, worth maybe $1,700 versus, you know, the how many hundreds of, or tens of millions of shares are actually out there. And it's essentially a class action. That's What it is is the representative plaintiff is certified as, as a class plaintiff who sues on behalf of all the shareholders of the company, uh, usually suing management for some sort of breach of fiduciary duty or some sort of um, something that went on that, that is uh, abusive or injurious to the share, larger shareholders. And this is, you know, in public corporations. Well, in this case, uh, you know, Elon Musk had set up a – a compensation package that was based on performance and based on not only performance targets, like he has to fulfill certain actual uh, things like developing and, and getting a car to market, as well as the actual value of the company, uh, the, you know, the float. And um, he blew those away, uh, and this was uh, promulgated in 2018. So in the past six years, it, he took the company from something like a $50 billion uh, uh, company uh, value to almost $650 billion. Um, and, and, and in some cases met the performance targets ahead of what they were supposed to, uh, you know, what, what, what his uh, targets were in order for him to, for the shares to vest. And it was done in tranches, so it's like $50 billion at a time worth of shares that he would be vested, uh, would vest in him in the company uh, where he, if he meets these targets. And, and clearly he did, and he blew them away. So all the shareholders benefited from this. Uh, in the company as he grew the company over the last six years and, you know, has done an amazing job, frankly, um, and is considered a visionary by, you know, even his detractors. And while he's doing this, he's also running, of course, SpaceX and now Twitter uh, on top of that. So what these what these shareholders said was that this was a, a, an excessively huge compensation package, you know, an, un, an unprecedented, historically large uh, you know, sort of um, just giveaway to to the, to the primary, the the main shareholder, as well as the CEO or whatever he he holds in, in terms of a management position or the top management position in the company. Um, and the way Delaware reviews it is, they take the uh, there, there's a, a standard basically. In most cases, you have the what's called the business judgment rule, where uh, Judgment is given, the, the, or excuse me, the uh, deference is given to the judgment of the board of directors and/or the you know, management, as the case may be, in making these decisions. Unless there can be shown to be some sort of um, uh, you know, basically uh, interest in the transaction involved uh, on the part of the people who are making the decision. Now that's not the case here, and, and if that if that happens, then it, it goes to what they have two, uh, three levels. First is business judgment, then heightened scrutiny, and the, the most strict is called entire fairness. 
And in the entire fairness case, it's going to be evaluated in terms of is this entirely fair in every respect to the shareholders? You know, and, and in this case, the judge in Delaware, the, who is the actual chancellor, um, who uh, normally, you know, Delaware is known for decisions which, uh, you know, it, it really, frankly, um, uh, smartly, I should say, give deference to boards of directors and to management of companies because, you know, we don't want judges uh, meddling, frankly, in the business judgments and decisions of these companies. These are huge. Uh, you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you know, worth of um, uh, value and equity, and you just you can't have judges just making second guessing and uh, you know, reversing and uh, overruling these decisions. So they have established these standards, and typically they would allow for, uh, especially in the case of, of this uh, deal where the, the shareholders of the company by a 73% vote ratified uh, and you know affirmed this this uh, compensation package. But of course you have attorneys out there, entire law firms that are built on finding such as uh, you know, little picayune things, for example, in a, a proxy statement or disclosure um, that was either missing or was slightly erroneous and saying, well, this was, you know, this was uh, put one that was put past the shareholders based on uh, bad information. Um, and that's essentially what they did here, uh, in addition to saying that uh, Musk is a controller of the company. He essentially is not merely just a, uh, you know, he's not independent of the board. He somehow, in their minds, controls the board. Um, and this judge really, um, I mean, it's a very dense opinion, and it's it's oh, it's just way way too too filled with. Um, I, I think whoever is writing this, I mean, I get the sense that they really wanted to showcase themselves on the you know the national and international stage by writing this opinion. So it's got a lot of sort of hokey, um, I don't know, just. It, you know irrelevancies and the way it's written and it, it just the, the language of it seems to me someone's trying to showcase themselves in addition to uh, thinking that they're striking a blow against the you know the big bad uh, you know billionaire uh, as the case may be and in, and in Musk's case they they essentially said he controls the board of or he he is a controlling uh, shareholder and manager and that the board itself is not independent. Uh, of him because it simply works closely with him, um, and it, it cited a number of things that it didn't disclose. That it, it didn't disclose about these, uh, you know, any close relationships he has with board members in the proxy statement when they voted on it. Um, and essentially, they're using that as well as the fact that he's a controller to apply the entire fairness standard, which is a very strict standard, which you know shows that uh, it, it essentially says you have to. Um, Every, I mean, it's, it's very, it's essentially allowing the court to substitute their judgment as to what is fair uh, in terms of the shareholders, um, who, again, the shareholders uh, benefited from this, uh, from from Musk's uh, stewardship of the company to the tunes of literally going from, you know, mid like a fifty billion to a six hundred and fifty billion dollar company. So they all benefited, but you know, they in it, this in close judgment calls like this, a judge can decide, well, you know, this is too much. This is entirely way beyond, uh, you know, what, what any person should have, you know, back to the sort of um, thinking they're being populist, thinking they're being sort of uh, uh, you know, representing the little people, you know, versus the, uh, the uh, excessive uh, executive compensations that we see, and have gone ahead and said that this was not fair, that this was excessive beyond belief. But, you know, you read the opinion at the outset, it says, should the, the, the question is posed, should the richest man in the world, uh, you know, is, is this too much? 
Um, and when you get into questions like that, is you know the subjective questions to how much is too much or how much is enough, you've gone off the rails and into the realm of you know these people are substituting their judgments. And then you know when you're dealing with a state that is, you know, let's face it, I mean Elon Musk has not been exactly uh, well received by the uh, Biden administration. Now this you know Delaware is pretty much a thoroughly uh, uh, just infested blue state in terms of uh, it's run by Democrats completely. There's an entire patronage hierarchy there, um, and it's been taken over entirely to where Republicans are almost irrelevant now. You're in a sort of a Rhode Island or a Connecticut situation, unfortunately, uh, whereas we once had balance in the state with uh, you know, Senator Bill Roth, Mike Castle, and others. Um, now it's just completely a Democrat backwater, and unfortunately it's been degenerating the state for a couple decades or more now, and now it's got reached the Chancery Court, in my opinion, where this um, this chancellor who has um, uh, worked for the Community Legal Aid Society, uh, you know, is not necessarily have, uh, someone with a corporate law background or uh, any sort of um, business acumen or, or experience or background that I've seen or been able to detect, is now put in charge of making these decisions concerning a major international figure and businessman. Uh, who is obviously very politically uh, involved as well now, took over Twitter, freed it up for you know people like you, frankly, who had been banned for life. Um, and I think that uh, I, I really feel like that this was a – the way this whole thing went down and rescinding entirely, not trying to craft any sort of compromise um, – uh, decision on on the compensation package. Just after six years, essentially, this man built this company up to almost ten times what, it, you know, more than ten times what its value was when he started, and his his uh, compensation that he expected and that had been vested over years is just completely rescinded. Uh, and it's, I, I really think the Chancery Court uh, this, this decision is really striking a blow, not for shareholders' rights, but for against Delaware's interests in being the prime prime court of corporate uh, corporate law and corporate uh, jurisprudence. They, this is the only reason that these major companies cite in Delaware is because of that predictability with the uh, corporate jurisprudence, with the Chancery Court. It's not because of any sort of tax. People think, oh, it's some tax havens. It's not at all that. It's just, frankly, the, the, uh, the, the institutional predictability. Um, and they really have uh, struck a, uh, you know, a at least a dagger, I guess you could say, at least one dagger into the heart of that, which, by the way, drives 21% of the state's entire gross revenues on an annual basis. So they're really messing with the golden goose here um, with a decision like this because Elon Musk announced and has every uh, – I can't blame him that he is going to take, take – uh, you know, first of all, he said don't ever incorporate in Delaware. And then he also said he's going to take uh, Tesla and, and completely uh, remove it from Delaware and turn it into a Texas corporation. So I think you know this this may feel good politically for people in the uh, sort of the woke left or the anti supposedly anti wealthy left, you know, who think that they're um, you know these billionaires, they, you know, they like their they like the billionaires that fund them like a Soros, but uh, you know a Tesla who's an actual or excuse me a uh, Musk who's an actual. Uh, you know, an honest-to-God entrepreneur and, and really a creator, someone who employs thousands upon thousands of people and has actually done something for the world, well, he's just an evil, you know, capitalist and businessman who's being paid too much for this company that he's built from nothing. So we'll see what happens, but um, I hope the Supreme Court of Delaware uh, maybe, you know, finds better reasons to, uh, to uh, overturn this decision so that Elon Musk can uh, – 
you know, first of all, have his compensation that he deserves, and secondly, so the state doesn't go down the tubes with, as people flee. He's a very in- influential individual, and you know, I would uh, I'd be concerned if I was in Delaware. Uh, but uh, Tyler, isn't when you get right down, isn't this all politics? In other words, look at the incredible number now of federal investigations by this administration into Elon Musk. He had none of them until he uh, reopened. Uh, uh, test, uh, pardon me, he reopened Twitter, now known as X, uh, to the concept of free speech, and he unbanned people like like myself, like Alex Jones, like others who are controversial. And he has very, very badly embarrassed the Democrats, specifically uh, on the question of uh, the claim that Hunter Biden's laptop had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, uh, and banning even outlets like the New York Post, from Twitter when they reported otherwise. Isn't this all politics? Well, I'd like to say that, um, and and it sort of feels that way, but this suit was actually uh, launched in 2018, so it's been ongoing for roughly six years. However, that doesn't mean that, you know, someone with a a partisan ulterior motive or, uh, you know, when it comes down to all things being equal is going to say, well, you know, we're going to we're going to stick it to the guy who's not aligned with our political views or our, our partisan ideology. So, uh, I, you know, I can't say there's any indicia of that outright, but it sure is convenient. You know, it sure is part of, it seems like part of this larger uh, slide of, of our judiciary across the board into just partisan retribution against people who challenge the, uh, the current uh, ruling regime, the Biden administration, and generally uh, this notion of a, I hate to say it, a fascist government that we have where nobody has a right to uh, speak out against it, and anybody who dares cross it, as you well know, is going to be targeted for persecution. All right, folks, if you're just uh, tuning in, we're talking to Tyler Nixon here on The Roger Stone Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the Georgia case against President Donald Trump and the incredible revel- revelations about uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Wills, uh, as well as these recent developments in the federal January 6th case, will be right back. It's the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. We're back, folks. This is the Roger Stone Show, and I'm your host, Roger Stone. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Tyler Nixon, uh, attorney at law, longtime Republican and conservative activist, a man who deeply understands not only the law, but also politics, uh, the media and how they operate. And uh, Tyler, you have a new show on TNT radio. I want to congratulate you on that. Tell us about that. Oh, thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. Well, as you know, Roger, uh, having worked with you over the years on uh, different radio broadcasts, and uh, we had uh, uh, talked about maybe having a show together at some point, and uh, I just sort of... Um, you know, was uh, looking for a platform um, and TNT Radio. I've been working with them for a couple of years, and they have a. I know, I've seen, I know you've been a regular guest on there, and they're really an excellent, excellent uh, network that's ramping things up um, with a, with a really broad range of um, very interesting uh, hosts. And they're 24/7. Uh, they're, they're actually based out of Australia, but uh, I have launched my show, which you can watch on TNT Radio Live at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern on uh, weekdays. Yeah, so it's net-based. I really find it uh, fascinating. Folks who want to follow us can go to wabcradio.com. And I, again, urge people to go to the app uh, on your cell phone 
and download the 77 WABC radio app because whether it is uh, Larry Kudlow or Cindy Adams or Dominic Carter or Frank Marano, uh, you don't want to miss any of the great programming that we have here at 77 WABC. So if you unfortunately have to miss a show, uh, you can go back and listen to it later. Uh, and as I said earlier, we're very proud of the fact that we're live streaming worldwide. doesn't matter where you are. You can go to wabcradio.com uh, and listen to us uh, at any time. So uh, please take advantage of it. But really, go to, go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC Radio app. You'll be really glad that you did. All right, Tyler, um, uh, the tsunami of lawfare against uh, President Donald Trump uh, doesn't seem to be slowing him down at all. A new NBC News national poll shows Trump pulling out to the largest lead he has had over Biden, now leading by five, 47 to 42 nationally. The generic ballot has Republicans over Democrats up four points, but simply leading 49-45, which uh, is interesting uh, in itself. Uh, these latest developments in Georgia, it's always seemed to me that all of these prosecutors, whether it's the, the case in South Florida, the so-called documents case, or whether it is the Fulton County uh, case, or these two cases we've seen in New York City, one uh, based uh, around the valuation of his properties under law in which no one has ever been prosecuted, uh, in which there are no victims because Trump borrowed money and paid it back at handsome interest rates, those who lent it to him made $40 million in interest uh, on their loans, uh, or the, uh, the equally ridiculous defamation case uh, against a woman who I hope keeps giving interviews and talking because she undermines her own credibility every time she does that, who has claimed that she was raped uh, by Donald Trump. The court felt that she was assaulted, did not find that she was raped, but she needs to keep talking because I think she... She really brings into question her own credibility. Uh, this is all about timing. They really want to put Donald Trump on trial someplace uh, beyond these civil cases, which we've seen in New York, which have been enough of a drain, by the way, on his time and his resources. Uh, but they're desperate to put him on trial before the election. That's beginning to look less likely. I'm not prepared to crack open the champagne, but... What's the latest out of Georgia uh, with Fannie Wills, the uh, Fulton County prosecutor? Well, Roger, you know, I thought I'd seen it all, having lived through your persecution and you know by your side and all the this, the skullduggery and unbelievable misconduct that I witnessed uh, in the in the federal prosecutors on your case, as if that wasn't bad enough. But I mean, what they're trying to do to Donald Trump is just it's so bad, and it's such a cast of freaks frankly, from this Engron to uh, uh, Alvin Bragg to Fannie Willis to uh, uh, Eugene Carroll as a plaintiff, and frankly, the rogue uh, nut job and, in my view, completely illegitimate uh, so-called special counsel Jack Smith. Um, and, you know, and the fact is that these people are corrupt to the core, and it's really showing in Georgia where these people are not only corrupt, arrogant in their power, where they think they can, you know, she thinks she can get away with basically paying multi, you know, almost a million dollars to uh, her lover, essentially, 
and have him be this special prosecutor on the case, as if like her team, as if the Fulton County prosecutor in, under her office are not sufficient, like she needs to bring in outside help. I mean, if you know, it, it, it's just it stinks to high heaven, and you know they think they can, they think they ride under this cloud of privilege and that they're somehow uh, can get away with it. But she's a complete hypocrite. I don't know if you're aware that they, uh, that you know, they're they're unearthing now uh, video or, or audio tapes. First of all, an audio tape of a whistleblower in her office has come out in which uh, she alerted, uh, try, the, the whistleblower tried to alert Fannie Wills to, to the fact that um, one of her main office, I think the, one of the lead people in her office, was talking about taking a $400-plus-thousand-dollar federal grant and essentially blowing it on goodies and swag for, the, for themselves in the office, which is absolutely not what, it, you know, not what it's meant for. And so this whistleblower went to Fannie Wills and, and, and said, you know, this, he can't do this. He's going to be intent. He said that's what he's going to do. Fifty-six days later, rather than fire this, uh, this um, you know, corrupt person on her staff, she fired the whistleblower. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that's one example. And then, of course, another is um, uh, there's a video come out of her when she ran for office saying that she, she was going to clean up the office and that, that no one should be having sex with their uh, employees in the district, uh, uh, district attorney's office. I mean, you know, you can't write that. You can't. You can't obviously, obviously, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you know, there's such hypocrites and such glaring hypocrites. Now, uh, you know, the problem is, I think, though, They've established enough with this sort of kangaroo process that, you know, once you get past a certain point, it's difficult to just, you know, overturn or, or to uh, completely dismiss charges. So, you know, the, the options in front of the Trump team and all the co-defendants, uh, which is just outrageous. I mean, suing, they've dragged the lawyers in the court. It's really disgusting, uh, you know, fascist-level stuff. But the problem is, is that, you know, they're, I don't think the judge, even if they, he were to uh, remove Fannie Wills uh, from the uh, you know, from the case, or as she should be, frankly, removed from office, and Brian Kemp should step in for once in his life and do something right. Um, but the problem is, is that it, you know, the case will remain, and then then who do you get after her? You might end up getting a you know an actually legitimate, credible prosecutor who, even though the case is a bunch of garbage, will still nonetheless feel he has to vind or she has to vindicate it. So uh, you know, I almost question whether keeping. Uh, Fanny on the case might be you know, better because it just reminds everybody what a corrupt bunch of nonsense it is run by a frankly hypocritical, corrupt, self-dealing, uh, practically criminal uh, so-called DA. But the underlying premise of the case is that Trump lost Georgia. There's a current pending federal lawsuit that brings that very much into question, where surprisingly a Democrat judge, Judge Totenberg, uh, seems intent on getting to the truth about the last election. There's also a number of state uh, litigations that are ongoing. I think most people see through this. Uh, I was kind of shocked. It, it appears to me that Fannie Wills paid her her personal injury attorney boyfriend, who's never prosecuted a complex RICO case, in fact, never been a prosecutor at all, $645,000. Uh, and that didn't come from uh, the regular funding for her office, but came from federal funds that were earmarked, I'm, I've read, uh, for COVID relief. Uh, you can't really can't make this stuff up. And of course, as soon as she's criticized, she immediately plays, let's just say it, the race card. You can't expect uh, black women to do everything correctly. Essentially what she said in, a, uh, in church a couple weeks ago. It's 
uh, you're right. You can't really make this stuff up. It's really extraordinary. All right. Uh, unfortunately, we are we have run out of time. Uh, final point: uh, the January sixth case has now been delayed. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily permanent, uh, but uh, this is your last shot at the ball, Tyler. What what do you think about this announcement? I think that that's just a procedural thing where it is no longer in the purview of the court. Once it goes up to an appeals court, it's literally under the appeals court's docket. So I think it's actually people are making too much of it. And by the way, watch for Ed Meese's brief. I think they could knock out all that, all the entire federal uh, uh, juggernaut against uh, Trump with his Jack Smith uh, appointment, which is totally illegitimate. Uh, it's a very interesting point. It's interesting to me that Trump's attorneys have not brought that particular action in any jurisdiction. As you know, that 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 uh, question was visited by the D.C. Appeals Court uh, in the in the case of uh, Robert Mueller. This was in connection with my case, uh, but I think it was wrongly decided. This speaks to the question of whether the uh, uh, the appointment of Jack Smith required congressional approval uh, and so on. Anyway, we are we are out of time. I want to thank my guest Tyler Nixon uh, and wish him very good luck on his new TNT radio show. Uh, and uh, we'll get you back here at WABC sometime soon. Tyler, thank you for joining the Roger Stone Show. Roger, thank you. An honor and a pleasure, my friend. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and you're tuned in to the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC. We are indeed the crown jewel of AM radio. Uh, I urge you yet again to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC app directly to your cell phone so you don't miss any of the great programming that we have here at the most dynamic AM radio station uh, on the face of the planet. And uh, if you uh, don't live in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I was born and grew up, uh, you can still listen by going to WABCradio.com. We are live streaming worldwide, so there's never any excuse to miss any of the great programming right here at 77 WABC. It's the radio station that I grew up with. So uh, joining us now uh, is uh, John Guandolo. Uh, John Guandolo is a, uh, a veteran of the FBI. He's a 1989 U.S. Naval Academy graduate. Uh, he was uh, a Marine uh, infantryman and reconnaissance officer. He's a combat veteran of Desert Storm and other operations off the Bosnian coast in 1992. Uh, John Guandolo was an FBI special agent for five years in the criminal division, specifically working narcotics, uh, and then shortly after 9-11 moved over to the counterterrorism division. In 2006, uh, John Guandolo created the first training program inside the government on the Islamic movement, including Doctrine, Strategy, Network, and their uh, modus operandi. Uh, he had been uh, recruited out of the FBI in 2008 into the Department of Defense, working in the irregular warfare section, uh, working for Rich Higgins. Uh, he uh, became Director uh, Higgins became Director of Strategic Planning for National Security Council under President Trump. Uh, when the program that John worked on was uh, defunded under President Joe Biden, 
Uh, he went on to create a private organization to continue to work, training and educating military, law enforcement, and intelligence professionals, as well as state leaders and uh, citizens, uh, about the cabal of uh, Islamic terrorists currently operating inside the United States. John Guandolo, thank you so much for joining The Roger Stone Show. Roger, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, John, uh, I first uh, became aware of you uh, a number of years ago uh, in connection with a shocking story, which I still believe to be completely accurate, uh, in which uh, you said to multiple media outlets and in a number of interviews, uh, based on your very own sources, uh, that CIA Director John Brennan uh, had, in fact, converted to radical Muslim. Uh, what say you? Yeah, so that story I shared uh, on an interview and was the one who broke the story because uh, Mr. Brennan, uh, it, w it was really out of the fact that Mr. Brennan, while he was in positions of authority, uh, being a counterterrorism advisor to President Obama and then the CIA director, was actually working with and helping, aiding and abetting, if I use the legal term, and material supporting uh, groups that are jihadi groups, terrorist groups, uh, under federal law. And he was going to their conferences and encouraging them and uh, helping them with government support and taxpayer money, uh, granting money, and uh, really promoting their efforts, even though at the time he was doing it, in the largest terrorism financing trial in American history, which was adjudicated in Dallas, Texas in 2008, the U.S. versus the Holy Land Foundation trial, these organizations, for instance, the Islamic Society of North America, John Brennan spoke at their conferences and promoted their leaders. Um, the, the evidence in this over a decade-long investigation by the FBI, uh, the massive amount of evidence that the government has revealed that the Islamic Society of North America is not only a Muslim Brotherhood organization whose objective is to overthrow the U.S. government, but that they directly fund the terrorist group Hamas. And despite that, Mr. Brennan was uh, promoting these groups. And so uh, I had some folks that were in Saudi Arabia when uh, Mr. Brennan was the uh, chief of station for the CIA, and he was converted. And he didn't just convert to Islam. He was converted by members of the intelligence community and the leadership of Saudi Arabia. So my point was, it is an, it's a national security matter, and the fact that um, I was blasted, as you all know, by the media for you know saying such a thing. I mean, they still use it against me. Except now, they have to deal with the fact that people in the CIA, including another station chief, Brad Johnson, after he retired, went on national media shows and said yes. It was well known in the agency that John Brennan converted uh, to Islam. So it wasn't even a big deal. Uh, as, uh, I as I recall, he, he actually converted to Wahhabism, which is a particularly uh, uh, virulent strain uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Islam. It is interesting uh, that Brennan makes no bones about being a former communist, said he voted for the 
communist party candidate for president. Uh, he also, as the station chief in Rida, this has been confirmed, he approved the visas for four of the men who uh, hijacked the planes uh, that uh, hit the World Trade Center on 9-11. Yet, uh, if you criticize him, and I have when I criticized him, the judge in my case threatened to throw me in jail. You can't, you can't criticize John Brennan. I don't, I don't quite understand this. Right, and what's impl- I think if there's a really key point because I'm, I think this discussion is just a pathway to the bigger point, and that is Mr. Brennan is smack dab in the middle of a lot of what's going on right now with both the communist and jihadi movements in the United States, in that uh, you know. Uh, creating the Brennan Center and basically targeting people like you and me who speak truth about these specific issues and advancing and providing uh, assistance and paving the way and opening doors for uh, jihadis, what U.S. law would call terrorists, and uh, members of the, the communist movement here in the United States. And that's, uh, we've done quite a bit of work. I've done quite a bit of work in uh, uh, putting out the evidence on that, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because as you have discussed in, in what I think is great detail, you know, the Department of Justice certainly isn't going to go after a John Brennan because he's part of their club. He's, well, uh, he, he certainly skated, uh, he certainly skated uh, in the Durham report because uh, it's very clear that he was among those was fully aware of the fact that the so-called Steele dossier was a fraud. Uh, the FBI knew that. Andrew Weissman, the, the Mueller prosecutor, formerly general counsel of the FBI, he knew it as well. They all knew it. That's why I said in the opening that the Russian collusion hoax was the greatest single dirty trick uh, in American politics. And it's very clear that this is a plot that was hatched in the Oval Office that Obama knew, Vice President Joe Biden knew, Uh, National Security Advisor Susan Rice knew, FBI Director uh, 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 James Comey knew, John Brennan was a cheerleader for it on MSNBC every chance he got. They knew there was no Russian collusion between uh, the Russian intelligence agencies and Donald Trump's campaign, but they tried to use what they knew was fabricated evidence to illegitimately and illegally not only make a presentation to the FISA court to get uh, warrants to spy on Trump's associates and Trump himself. Uh, But uh, while Mr. Durham took five long years to finally issue a final report telling us there was no Russian collusion, special counsel Jack Smith actually wanted to try Donald Trump right in January. This just past January uh, for an indictment late last year. So the system can move very quickly when it wants to, but the system can also move at a snail's pace. How ironic that the five years that special counsel John Durham took to investigate the Russian collusion hoax and ultimately tell us there was no evidence of Russian collusion uh, took exactly as long as the statute of limitations so that Hillary Clinton uh, and Jake Sullivan and John Podesta and Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Susan Rice and the entire cabal completely avoid prosecution. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. It is, and I think it goes to the, the, quite frankly, the topic of our discussion today, which is how deeply is the, the government penetrated 
and uh, not just by terrorists, by jihadis, uh, but by others, uh, communists and others uh, who are not necessarily ideologically aligned with these uh, movements, the Islamic movement, the communist movement, but people who seek to undermine the constitutional republic. And you've got the number of people that are in the government uh, who are part of these movements or collaborating with these movements is significant to the point I would say, and, and uh, I would say this has been true uh, for several years, is that the key components of the government, be it the agriculture department, the health and human services, state department, treasury, the national security staffs, the key intelligence agencies are controlled by these people. And as we have uh, in the last 10 years, uh, and even in the early and mid 2000s after 9-11, when I was asked to quietly go up on Capitol Hill and brief people, and then when I was in the DOD, we were doing direct briefings with senior leaders, former CIA, FBI, DOD, or DIA directors, um, uh, former attorney generals, national security advisors, and they were truly shocked uh, at the level of penetration back then and how well-coordinated these movements are. Uh, and that's the thing that I think is shocking when I speak to either am training military, law enforcement, federal agencies. Um, and really, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to train federal agencies now, but I do run programs where individuals who are FBI, Border Patrol, DEA will be in the classes. And they're shocked. Uh, but we get a lot of Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, officers and analysts who say, you know, I've been doing this eight years. I've never heard any of the information you're presenting, and yet this information is critical to doing our jobs. And that right there is the point. Because when you look at, you know, when I was in the FBI, I wasn't allowed to go to the fourth floor where the linguists were because they said I was offending them with the work I was doing by investigating terrorists. That's in the FBI Washington field office. Uh, it's the same. Inside these, I don't think people understand. People get that there's a problem. It is so much worse than people understand. And when you look at individuals, uh, I've, you, you and I have talked before, but about guys like Abdurrahman Alamudi, who was the advisor to President Clinton, was in the White House more than any other Muslim, founded almost two dozen of the largest Muslim organizations in North America, was a goodwill ambassador for the State Department. He created the Muslim chaplain program in the Department of Defense, and yet he was the single most important financial courier for al-Qaeda and a senior Hamas Muslim Brotherhood leader in North America. And he got sentenced in 2004 to 23 years in federal prison. And yet Secret Service vetting, FBI vetting, they all said he was okay. And you've got guys like you know, an ISIS commander getting trained by State Department five times on weapons and tactics in the United States. And State Department just shrugs. Yeah, well, we vetted him. So what do you want from us? And nobody's going to jail for this. Of course they're not. Nobody's getting fired. Nothing. The, the federal government is catastrophically broken. 
and it is not going to get fixed in the next election cycle. And this is what people need to truly understand, that the, the work that my colleagues and I have been doing has been focused on the local level, the county level, because when we train counties and leaders in counties, be they just citizens or citizens and local officials and the sheriffs and they're all on board, you can literally clear these people out of your county once you understand who they are and where they are. But at the federal level, the penetration is so great. I give one more example, and then I'll let you uh, bat around the questions. But, you know, Mohammed Majid is a commissioner appointed by Mr. Biden by the White House to be a commissioner on the U.S. Council of International Religious Freedom. And he was the leader. He was the president and vice president of the single largest at the time Muslim Brotherhood Organization in North America, Hamas Organization the Islamic Society of North America, and he's the, still the executive director of the Adams Center in Sterling, Virginia, which is a Muslim Brotherhood organization, Hamas organization. And he's welcomed with open arms all across the, uh, you know, the Washington, D.C. community, the State Department, all this stuff. So the level of penetration of terrorists, al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, that are inside and have been inside the government is, is is shocking. And we're not even talking about other hostile movements like the communist movement and things like that. Folks, if you're just tuning in, I'm Roger Stone. We're here with former FBI uh, agent and counterterrorism uh, expert John Guandolo. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Now, here's Roger Stone. Thanks for tuning in. We're back on the Roger Stone Show. I'm talking to John Guandolo, uh, a 1989 U.S. Naval Academy graduate, uh, a, a proud uh, veteran who served with distinction uh, in Desert Storm as a Marine Infantry and Reconnaissance Officer, then uh, an FBI agent, uh, later uh, within the FBI, an expert on counterterrorism. He joins us now uh, to discuss uh, the simple question of how deeply have Islamic terrorists uh, infiltrated uh, our country. Uh, we talked about this the other day, John. It seems to me that people uh, in the national security apparatus specifically uh, tasked with uh, relations with Iran, this fellow Robert Malley, a woman who works for her, Malley had his, uh, his security clearance recently yanked, although the administration doesn't tell us why. This, I think, may be the greatest spy scandal since uh, Alger Hiss. It is, it is amazing. So uh, Ariane Tabatabai was the chief of staff for ASD Solik, and, so, and she was an Iranian, is an Iranian agent who reported directly to a senior IRGC or Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, officer as her primary point of contact. Uh, and what I think is amazing is for people that don't understand, ASD Solik, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, she was the chief of staff. And that means for all special operations in the Department of Defense, uh, ASD Solik has an input on uh, training, policy, preparations, operations, 
uh, and execution of operations, uh, it's it's fantastic. Like that is a significant penetration. But I go back to not only the examples before, but what what does this penetration mean? How does somebody like this pass security clearances and vetting processes in the government? And all I'm saying is the vetting process in the U.S. government is broken. It's non-existent. And more importantly, the U.S. government does not have a viable counterintelligence apparatus. It doesn't exist. And and for people at home that are like, well, I have a friend and he works CI and the uh, counterintelligence and the FBI, or I have a friend and they're in the CIA, they're broken. It's broken. And I'll just let me give me 45 seconds to drop some uh, proverbial you know what's in the punch bowl. Is you know the CIA was doing putting young case officers in places like Pakistan, which is hostile, and Saudi Arabia, not an ally of the United States, hostile, in true name to be liaisons between the CIA and the host intelligence community. So that means that person can never do real covert counterintelligence ever, ever. That's just number one. Number two, if you're a Cuban or Venezuelan or Chinese intelligence officer, first of all, your intelligence agency doesn't, like the CIA and the FBI, recruit people on the World Wide Web. It's unprofessional. You recruit people by identifying people who are the kind of people you need, and then you go after them, and you recruit them individually. When you open the door to mass people, this is why we've had jihadis become FBI agents, and some have been stopped somewhere in the process, but some have not. And that's why when you just open the gate and say, hey, apply, and if 100 turds apply, we'll take the top three turds that apply. That's no way to run a law enforcement or intelligence agency. So these organizations, Chinese intelligence, they have multiple years that they train their people before they ever and then go through a whole nother layer with language training and specialty training before they ever walk into a first world country like the United States or uh, let's say some European capital. They're working in the third world first. They have, they have all this whole protocol of how they do it. In the FBI, for instance, you go through a four-week class and you get your counterintelligence certification. I mean, this is it's childish. It's unprofessional. It's juvenile. So we do not have in America a functioning counterintelligence apparatus, which is why these things are happening. To me, that's the bigger story. This is, every time this happens, you hear people in Congress ringing the bell. Oh, we're going to hold hearings. Well, what's come out of a hearing in the last 15 years? Jack, nothing. Nobody's held accountable. Nobody's executed for treason. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody's fired who was supposed to be vetting these people. So there's no accountability. That's why I say the federal government is not going to write itself. And the, you could get the best five people in the next administration or 100 people but it's the components of the government that are corrupted. And this is going to take, if it's possible, it's going to take a massive uh, undertaking to root out the people that are adversaries of liberty inside these components of government. And that's why I say this. The only way this gets fixed 
is by local communities getting trained in how to find the organizations and individuals who are part of the communist movement, the Islamic movement, their collaborators and financiers, flush them out of the county. So county by county, you're building a fortified area within your state. And I've been doing this now for quite a number of years, and it's working. And uh, in the last five years, we've really seen it taking off. But it's a slow, this is work. This is real work at the ground level. Well, it's also, as you know, extraordinarily uh, controversial. I mean, uh, local law enforcement in the county that I live in, uh, the largest sheriff's office in the state, uh, the number two official is uh, Islamic and belongs to a, a mosque, is associated with care. Um, if I criticized him, I'd be criticized. Uh, on the other hand, that does not make me terribly comfortable. Uh, to what extent do you think these movements have infiltrated local local law enforcement? Uh, significantly. And the, this is important maybe to, to just share this for the purpose of the audience, is that the reason that uh, I have focused and, and my organizations have focused on the Islamic and the communist movement, the jihadi movement, and the communist movement, is because where the rubber meets the road in anywhere USA, that is who's actually getting it done. So, yeah, when people ask, what about the U.N. or what about the World Economic Forum? Of course, those are adversaries of liberty. But what can you as a citizen do about the World Economic Forum or the U.N.? And the answer is not much. What we, well, When I train people, what we show them is where their tentacles touch your community, through the banking system, through you know the Google classrooms and other things, then we can show you here's, here's things you can do. The, the penetration at the local level is significant, and the sharpest end of the spear of this cabal, communist movement, Islamic movement, their collaborators and financiers, is through the interfaith outreach. And uh, let me make this statement before I go any farther. 100% of interfaith outreach in the United States is controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood when uh, Muslim uh, agencies or organizations are involved 100 percent it's unequivocal and so at the local level if you don't know how to how to identify the organizations and leaders and flush them out uh, you're not going to be successful and it is very helpful if your sheriff's office actually knows this and is willing to do something all right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Let me thank my guest, the former FBI uh, agent and counterterrorism expert, John Guandolo. I'm Roger Stone. Stay tuned for my good friend, Joe Piscopo, who's coming right along with Sundays on Sinatra. And thanks for joining us at 77 WABC on The Roger Stone Show. God bless you and Godspeed.